Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced in isolation on Jarjarwarrung country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Tim Sullivan from the Bendigo Trades Hall Council about the launching of their new library, so we'll hear that first. Then we'll hear an interview from Tilda Joy about JB Hi-Fi workers struggling for their safety at work. But first, some union news. In a report to state and federal governments this week, Hospo Voice raised major concerns that governments and employers would put profits before the safety of workers and the community in the reopening of the sector. The Australian hospitality industry has been hit worse than any other by the current crisis, with an estimated one in three paid jobs lost in the month of March alone, according to ABS data. Prior to COVID-19, workers in the sector faced widespread wage theft, poor safety standards, harassment and insecure jobs. United Workers Union National Secretary Tim Kennedy said the hospitality industry had an appalling track record when it came to looking after workers and there needed to be strict measures in place as restrictions eased to ensure everyone's safety. Like all Australians, we want things to return to normal and for workers to be back at work as soon as possible. But the top priority as things reopen must be safety, Mr Kennedy said. We have real concerns that the federal government and state governments have tunnel vision in the reopening efforts and are going to put profits before safety. That's why hospitality workers need a seat at the table and a clear set of standards upheld to ensure the entire community can have confidence the industry can reopen safely. As part of the first stage of the reopening of the industry, and to complement the safety measures governments are already adopting, United Workers Union recommends 1. Paid training for all hospitality staff prior to venue reopening to ensure workers are confident to identify, raise and resolve concerns in a COVID-19 environment. Workers need access to information, advice and support from their union in developing strong OH&S cultures and practices in the workplace. 2. Universal sick leave for all hospitality workers, including casuals, to ensure those who are sick do not come to work out of economic need. And three, workers in their unions must be authorised to notify state governments of non-compliance to ensure businesses adhere to regulations and community expectations. Without reporting mechanisms in place, the health of both patrons and employees could be jeopardised. More than 25 cars travelled from Thornley Oval to a nearby McDonald's in North Sydney on May the 15th to demand the multinational company drop its bid to change the Fast Food Industry Award, which would undermine workers' pay and conditions. The Maritime Union of Australia Sydney branch and the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union are calling on the Australian Council of Trade Unions and the SDA to drop support for McDonald's anti-worker push. On May the 5th, the Fair Work Commission knocked back employers' bid to change the fast food award, despite backing from the ACTU. Earlier, May 1st Movement spokesperson Paul McCallier said, These changes attack the conditions of young, low-paid and vulnerable fast food workers. Many make as little as 8 or $9 an hour. 
The AI group and the SDA are using COVID-19 as an excuse to push through the same attacks on part-time fast food workers that RAFU fought and defeated in the Fair Work Commission in February 2019, McCallia said. The proposed changes effectively casualise part-time work. If passed, tens of thousands of award-reliant fast food workers could lose their set shifts and instead be rostered at the whim of management on a weekly basis. These changes are nothing to do with COVID-19. They have everything to do with giving multinational behemoths like McDonald's flexibility to exploit their workers. RAFU members aren't going to sit back and allow some of the most exploited young, vulnerable and low-paid workers to be sold out without a fight. McDonald's in Victoria has also forced a thousand casual workers to quarantine on no pay because it isn't providing a safe workplace. The McCluster from Faulkner has spread to Craigieburn and has now hit 12 other outlets. Over 1,000 workers stood down without pay. Many outlets remain without any hand sanitizer, and all others have ineffective hand rub. WorkSafe and Safe Work authorities must intervene and McDonald's must pay all its workers, including casual workers, who it has put at risk. Last week, Annie covered the situation of workers within the NTEU. As we heard, the leadership of the NTEU, both at the national and state level, have struck a deal with the vice-chancellors that accepts significant cuts to conditions and pay. However, the agreement needs to pass a vote by the National Electronic Ballot of Members to be held on the 25th of May. This week, the NTEU executive and the universities have both been out in force justifying their actions with economic rationalism. The NTEU called it a landmark agreement that would save 12,000 jobs. For more information about the campaign to stand up for workers' rights, go to the NTEU Fight Back No Concessions page on Facebook. If you'd like to hear more, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash stick together and listen to Annie's show entitled Higher Education Battleground. This week, the Independent Education Union of Australia released a report entitled COVID-19 is not gender neutral. The COVID-19 pandemic is deepening pre-existing inequalities, exposing vulnerabilities in social, political and economic systems. Prevailing gender inequality in the workforce means that employment insecurity disproportionately affects women. While women are 50% of all employees, they are 57% of employees without leave entitlements and 61% of award-reliant employees, earning an average of $242.90 per week less than men. In frontline industries impacted by COVID-19, women comprise the larger part of the workforce and are majority of casual employees. Critical frontline services in healthcare and social assistance have a workforce that is 80% female, with women accounting for 79% of casuals. In childcare and schools, women are 86.7% and 72.5% of the workforce, respectively. But accommodation and food services, an industry of 58% women, majority casuals, has been the hardest hit, with a third of its entire workforce being left unemployed. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, it was reported that one in six women had experienced sexual or physical violence at the hands of a current or previous cohabiting partner. The impact of COVID-19 pandemic has seen an increase in risk of gendered violence, both at work and at home. 
The pandemic is placing greater financial, health and domestic pressures on households and at the same time increasing women's isolation and reducing their financial and job security. The social distancing and forced isolation requirements are changing home arrangements. For many, the home is now the workplace. For people experiencing domestic or family violence, attending work provides a safe haven and a means of accessing vital support. Large numbers of workers are now being required to work from home, regardless of whether it is a safe environment to do so. Women have not been able to seek the support of friends and family due to social distancing and isolation measures. At the workplace, frontline workers in care and service industries are facing increased risks of violence and harassment from anxious and stressed customers, patients, parents and clients. COVID-19 is not only a challenge for health systems, but also a test of our human spirit. Recovery must lead to a more equal world that is more resilient to future crisis. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Tim Sullivan from the Bendigo Trades Hall Council. He told me about their new library and how they can't wait to open their doors to the public. So my name's Tim and I'm on the Bendigo Trades Hall Council. I'm also on the executive for Bendigo Trades Hall and I'm with the Australian Services Union in the social and community services area. The council is made up of, um, like, the people who actively attend. There's maybe 14 people, um, a quorum of 10, and we sometimes don't make quorums. So, like, it's um, it can be pretty slow going to get stuff happening. But, um, yeah, there's some, there's some good stuff happening at the hall. There's lots of, like, Luke, the secretary... Um, he's been doing some great work over the past sort of three or four years that he's been there. Yeah. Um, really sort of getting the place up and running again mm. um, after a period of sort of stagnation. Um, and we've had a few working bees, like emptying out old cupboards that are like dirt floor, like where people have just been, <laughs> people have been like stacking paper on dirt floor since like the 60s in yeah. there. Um, so emptying out some of that shit and finding some cool stuff. And, yeah, yeah, tell me about something cool that you found. Uh, there was some teachers' union stuff um, from, I think, like, 67 or something, some, like, handbook um, kind of things. Mm. Uh, so we kind of big, like, um, big made a poster from the Railways Union, I guess the, you know, predecessor to the ITVU. And poster is the camping out award. So it was like how much camping out rates was like how much you get paid for camping next to the railway tracks while you work. Like some really cool history stuff. Yeah. Um, Old banners and stuff. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So you had to postpone the launch of the library, but um, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us about what kind of books? Well, um, the reason that we put the library together, we had a donation from, Jane Cleary, I believe was her name, um, and her husband, Phil. He was an author and sort of labour bloke in Bendigo. He mm. passed away and all of his books were donated to the hall probably four years ago or so. Okay. Um, maybe a bit more. And so we sort of had all these books just sitting in boxes and then maybe 12 months ago we started talking about, like, what if we make that available to other people? Then we put the call out to see what 
um, you know, if other people wanted to donate and we got some big donations. Mm. Um, yeah. We have had lots of books coming in, all sorts of things from like multiple copies of Margaret Thatcher's autobiography. Oh, God. <laughs> I guess like, um, I think, it, yeah, we decided it was worth keeping in like the know your enemy kind of way. Um, is you, so is that a section, is it? Know your enemy. Or, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It probably it just about could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it probably could be. There's lots of, um, there's lots of biographies. Yeah. Um, there's lots of broad um, activism and politics and political theory, mm. um, lots of Marx and Engel and Lenin and stuff. And then there's lots of stuff about, like, there's um, economics and um, labour organising stuff as well. Mm. Heaps. And, and, and there's some really cool old pamphlets, like there's a yeah. pamphlet on syndicalism from 1908 in printed in Chicago that's like falling apart. We've got this, yeah, some really cool stuff like that. We've got to work out how to um, preserve that. But yeah. make it. And the idea of it being available to people is that at least at the start, it will just be open to the public to come in and read. So it'll be more of a reading yeah. room. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there's a, a space for that. There's some you mm. know, chairs and tables, um, small lounge area. So the idea would be that we would, um, we've been talking about how many days to be open and stuff. We're thinking like two weekdays and um, and one weekend day, yeah. um, having sort of a rotating roster of people in there. Yeah. And then as by appointment. Cool. Yeah. And I think um, that Bendigo has, um, like from the Red Ribbon Rebellion right through yes. to today, has sort of rebellious um, history and, and, mm. and strong working class history. Um, but I think it over the years it has swung to the conservative side in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and I think that for um, for the hall, I would love to see more people um, putting their hand up to get onto the council. Um, mm. There are, a lot of, um, you know, each each affiliated union has a certain number of seats on the council, but not a lot of them attend. Um, okay. So, like, attend meetings and get active yeah. in committee. Stuff. So I think that, um, like for me, I just contacted my union and I said I want to be on um, the Trades Hall Council mm. and I know I've got seats and I know that those people aren't attending. Yes. And, <laughs> and um, so I think that's sort of pushing within our own organisations. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's part of it is that, like, we have people sort of float in and out of the council occasionally and mm. someone comes and go like, yes, new blood, and they come to, like, a couple of meetings and um, and you know, then you don't see him again. And I, mm. I often like, how do we, um, how do we retain people? Uh, yeah. keep it um, and I think that there's an element of unionism being relatively quiet in Bendigo mm. over recent history. And I think a lot of that is that sort of small town thing that if you cause a bit of strife at one workplace through, you know, grassroots organising, and mm. then you aren't in that workplace anymore, it's, pretty easy for word to spread that you know <laughs> don't hire this person because of mm. whatever you know so i think a lot of people keep their unionism on the down low so they're not as keen mm. to put their and get onto all sorts of committees and get their name in the paper or whatever yeah but i've seen even just uh in the last year it seems like there's more uh going on at the hall like in yep. terms of trying to 
uh, also show that, you know, this is the community space that like different activities can go on there and, and just getting people into the hall? There, there's certainly a push at the moment um, and it has been over the last few years. Um, I've only been involved with the hall for I think maybe two years or something and, and mm. saw the same things that you're saying, like seeing mm. that, that focus change um, towards trying to bring people in. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's a push for that at the moment. Um, yeah, it's hard um, now that COVID's making it absolutely can't get yep. together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, Deb, our our president, and Luke, the secretary, um, uh, really, yeah, active in that. Um, yeah. And yeah, there, there's always it's it's interesting. There's always stuff going on at the hall, um, but we're maybe not fantastic at promoting it. Um, mm. Yeah, how can people get involved and or um, tell their stories? At the moment, um, we uh, it would be you know getting in touch with the trades hall would be via via our Facebook page or yep. um, website. We've got a contact form on there and um, and contact details, email and phone number, which will get you through to Luke, our secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in terms of activity that people can get involved at the moment, it's a bit difficult um, remotely, but or you know online but um once the um once the lockdown is over or you know has lifted a bit um we'll be able to launch the library um mm-hmm. which will create a bit more of a social space for people yeah. with each other that kind of space of encounter yeah. um and um so i think that um that'll be a good way for people to get in you know get get involved with the hall but also i think and i think more importantly get involved with each other like yeah. do that kind organizing and and, um, and solidarity building stuff just by having a space to go to and hang out yeah cool. yeah looking forward to some banner making and, and stuff yes. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep. cool all right thanks so much tim we'll speak to you, on you. thanks Nate. <laughs> cheers right. See ya. you just heard from tim sullivan from bendigo trades hall council about some of the activities happening at the hall now we're going to hear Tilda Joy interview three RAFU members about their experiences working at JB Hi-Fi and their campaign to close stores during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks everyone for calling in today. We're joined here by three JB Hi-Fi workers. And I was just wondering if you could introduce yourselves. Maybe we'll start with Morty. Yes. Um, hello, my name is Morty. Uh, I am a student activist worker at JB Hi-Fi and member of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Uh, Hi, my name is Harry. Um, I've worked at JB Hi-Fi for around seven and a half years. Uh, Yeah, I'm Cameron and uh, I've been working in JB in Tassie for about four years. So there's been a campaign the last few weeks at JB Hi-Fi in response to the COVID-19 crisis. How did all of this start? So uh, just over a month ago now, uh, I joined RAFWU and started reaching out in the Facebook groups as to what we could do, like what what rights we had, what what we wanted to uh, ask for. And uh, Morty commented on that. We got to to chatting. Uh, We created a little chat group that everything came from. Uh, We sort of worked out uh, we wanted to get what we what we thought would be the right move for JB for uh, everyone involved and um, yeah it just it just went from there uh, a few days later we contacted Rafu 
uh, with with the demands we had, which was uh, JB closing down stores to customers, uh, paying all workers, including casuals, a base rate, and uh, yeah, really just putting customer and uh, worker health first. As a response to this pandemic, Rafu put together a set of claims for the retail and fast food industries more generally. How do the claims at JB Hi-Fi differ from that? Like, I know you're pushing for things like store closures, for example. The, the way a lot of people I spoke to saw it is that um, there is obviously a legitimate reason for stores who sell food, that sell um, essential goods, um, to remain open with the highest protections possible. While JB might sell some things that might be considered essential, I've yet to find anything that couldn't be sold online or anything that was uh, essential enough to to warrant keeping stores open with business as usual, I guess would be would be the difference there. It's not about that our lives are worth more than theirs, but just that um, their jobs are more essential than ours. I think we all agreed um, more or less that uh, JB Hi-Fi has a a really fantastic online service that um, is up and running throughout this time and will continue to do so. Um, And we felt that the pragmatism about sort of moving to online during this um, period of time whilst we are in lockdown would be beneficial and also enabling um, the health and safety of both staff and customers who may be of high risk. So what are your biggest concerns around safety as you continue to work through this pandemic? It's the practicality of it. Um, like, say, with um, having caps, a uh, ratio of uh, you know customers per square metre in a store or whatever, that's all well and good, but not everyone is spread out evenly over a store. You've got certain departments that are packed full of people and others that are empty while you've got 80 or 100 people in there. It's just too hard to be able to to maintain those those standards. And then also keeping things um, clean throughout the day, you know, um, people constantly using FPOS machines and touching things. To be able to keep that at a standard that's safe uh, is just impractical. Now, Cameron, you live and work in Tasmania, and that's probably quite different from a lot of our metropolitan listeners you were mentioning to me earlier that a lot of people are traveling from around the state to visit your store. Yeah, that's right. So my my store is in Launceston. There's only three stores in, in Tassie. Mine's in Launceston. We're the only ones in the north of the state. For anybody that doesn't know where Launceston is, it's basically in the middle up the north. So that means that we have people from the east coast, the west coast, and all along the north of Tasmania we're the only JB store for, for this half of the state. So we have people coming from all over the state, which for me just, you know, it's not just necessarily our safety and just the general community safety, but that just due to our location and people coming and going from all parts of the state, it could actually be a real centre for spread, particularly seeing that in the northwest of the state is where I guess like the epicentre is in Tassie, um, where it's still still a problem up there. They're actually in lockdown now, but we were having people coming down uh, to our store, um, people calling up just saying that they're coming down for a game, things like that. Like just uh, having that kind of traffic from such varying places in the state, uh, I just saw as a real um, like potential uh, issue. 
So this campaign's grown really quickly and there's been an amazing response from JB Hi-Fi workers all across the country. Your petition listing your demands has almost a thousand signatures now. Um, what's the reception been like in your stores? So just um, just to be clear, it's uh, around a thousand JB Hi-Fi workers, not just random people that have yeah. signed that petition. A, a massive um, percentage of my store has unionized um, since this has started. There's been a lot of enthusiasm, but uh, it it does vary from store to store. I've worked across uh, two stores since this started um, just temporarily and the attitude in another store might be not really so bothered that health and safety is at risk but more more just happy to to be working their regular shifts and just feeling normal um, which you know is, is a fair human response yeah definitely uh, the response in my store has been um, quite positive actually which is really wonderful I think um, one of the wonderful things that has developed out of this campaign is seeing solidarity being built and also seeing people collectively mobilize uh, and organize and come together through um, union action. Yeah it's really inspiring stuff and you should all be very proud of what you've achieved here. So I was wondering you're all fairly new to the union what's the experience of working with RAFU been like? The experience itself has been overwhelmingly positive because of how grassroots it is and also the fact that it is uh, undeniably a workers union which was incredibly important. Like I found that compared to other other unions where they might be oh we're representing you but they don't actually talk to the workers at all whereas this is a complete opposite of that. It's RAFU has said to us how are you guys going with it? What do you want to do next? They're facilitating what we want and they're using their expertise and guidance along with that. But it's definitely, it, this, this is definitely from the workers that are, the, the, that are running this, not some union stooges. It's so exciting to hear about how many workers have joined RAFU in recent weeks and they're already super active. You'll be happy to know we'll be hearing a lot more from Tilda Joy on Stick Together soon. But that's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Tilda Joy for her interview. Thanks to Morty, Harry and Cameron for sharing their stories. And thanks to Tim for telling us what's happening at Bendigo Trades Hall. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message.